Chapter twenty five of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty five. But after Lois had gone, Rosie came to life again. That is, she entered once more the conditions in which her mind was free to tread its round of grief. Lois kept her out of them. Her father and mother did the same. Household duties, the task of the hothouse, and the necessity for eating and sleeping and speaking, did the same. She turned from them all, with a weariness as consuming as a sickness unto death. She had done so from the instant when, crouching behind the vines of the cucumber-house, with all her senses strained, she perceived by the mere rustling of the leaves that Claude was making his way down the long green aisle. She knew then that it was the end. If there had been no other cause of rupture between them, the girl who kept ten or twelve servants would have created it. Rosie knew enough of Claude to be aware that love could not bear down the scale against this princeliness of living. There would be no such repentance and reaction on his part as she had experienced with Thor. Once he was gone, he was gone. It was the end. The soft opening and closing of the hothouse door as he went out reached her like a sigh, a last sigh, a dying sigh, after which nothing. Rosie expected nothing, but she waited. She waited as watchers wait round a deathbed for the possibility of one more breath, but none came. She stirred then and rose. She rose mechanically, brushing the earth from her clothing, and began again the interrupted task of picking the superfluous female flowers and letting them flutter downward. It was when she had come to the end of her third row, and was about to turn into the fourth, that the sense of the impossibility of going on swept over her. "'Oh, I can't!' She dropped her arms to her side. "'I can't! I can't!' She meant only that she couldn't go on just then. But in the back of her mind there was the conviction that she would never go on again. She continued to stand with her arms hanging and head drooped to one side, closed in by vines, with flowers of the hue of light around her like a halo, and bees murmuring among them. It was not merely that she was listless and incapable. The world seemed to have dropped away. She was marooned on a rock, with an ocean of nothingness about her. Everything she wanted had gone, sunk, vanished. It, it had come within sight, like mirage to the shipwrecked, only to torture her with what she couldn't have. It was worse than it had never shown itself at all. Love had appeared with one man, money with the other. Love and money were two of the three things she cared for. The poor, shiftless family was the third. Since the first two had gone, the last must follow them. Quite consciously and deliberately, Rosie lifted her hands with a little lamentable effort, letting them drop again, and so renounced her burden. She crept back to the spot whence she had risen, and lay down. There was a kind of ritual in the act. It was not now a mere stricken physical crouching, as when she had turned away from Claude. It was something more significant. It was withdrawal from work, from life, from all the demands she had put forth so fiercely. Renouncing these, Rosie also renounced Claude. It was a proof of the degree to which she had dismissed him, that, when, a half-hour later, she heard a rustling in the vines behind her. It never occurred to her that he might have come back. She knew already that he would never come back. 
the fatalism of her little soul left her none of those uncertainties which are safeguards against despair. She raised her head and looked, but she saw exactly the person she knew she would see. Antonio grinned and announced dinner. The sight of his young mistress, half sitting, half lying on the ground, struck him as droll. Rosie got up and brushed herself again. She knew it must be dinner-time. The fact had been at the back of her mind all through these minutes of comforting negation. But she should have been in the house, laying the table, while her mother cooked the meal. It was the first time in years that she had rebelled against a duty. It was not exactly rebellion now. It was something more serious than that. She realised it as she stood where she was, with hands hanging limply, and said to herself, "'I've quit.' Nevertheless, she emerged slowly from the jungle of vines, and followed Antonio down the long, rustling aisle. There was a compulsion in the day's routine to which she felt the necessity of yielding. She had traversed half the length of the greenhouse, before it came to her that it was precisely to the day's routine that she couldn't return. Anything was better than that. Any fate was preferable to the round of cooking and cleaning and seed-time and harvest, of which every detail was impregnated with the ambitions she had given up. She had lived through these tasks, and beyond them, out into something else, into a great emptiness in which her spirit found a kind of ease. She could no more go back to then than the released soul could go back to earth. In the yard... She stood looking at the poor, battered old house. Inside, her father, who had probably by this time returned from town, would be sitting down to table. Antonio, to save the serving of two sets of meals, would be sitting down with him. Her mother would be bringing something from the kitchen, holding a hot platter with a corner of her apron. If she went in, her mother would sit down too, while she herself would do the running to and fro between the table and the pantry or the stove. She would snatch a bite for herself in the intervals of attendance. Rosie revolted. She revolted not against the drudgery which was part of the matter of course of living, unless one kept a girl. She revolted against the living itself. It was all over for her. In proof that it was, she turned her back on it. Her moving away was at first without purpose, if her feet strayed into the familiar path that ran down the hill between the hothouses and the apple-trees, it was because there was no other direction to take. She hadn't meant to go up through the wood to Duck Rock before she found herself doing it. The newly-leafing oaks were a shimmer of bronze-green above her, while she trod on young ferns that formed a carpet such as was never woven by hands. Into it were worked white star-flowers without number, with an occasional nodding trillium. The faint, bitter scent of green things too tender as yet to be pungent rose from everything she crushed. She was not soothed by nature, like Thor Masterman. She had too much to do with the raising of plants for sale to take much interest in what the earth produced without money and without price. If it had not been that her mind was as nearly as possible empty of thought, she wouldn't have paused to watch an indigo bunting, whose little brown mate was probably nearby, hop upward from branch to branch of a solitary juniper, his body like a blue flower in the dark boughs, while he poured forth a song that waxed louder as he mounted. She observed him idly, and passed onward, because there was nothing but that to do. Her heart was too dead to feel much emotion, 
when she emerged on the spot where she had been accustomed to keep her trysts with Claude. Her trysts with Claude had been at night. She had other sorts of association with this summit in the daytime. All her life she had been used to come here burying. Here she came to with Polly Wilson and other girlfriends, when she had any, for strolls and gossiping. Here, too, Jim Breen had made love to her, and Matt's companion of the grocery. The spot being therefore not wholly dedicated to memories of Claude, she could approach it calmly. She sat down on the familiar seat that circled the oak tree and gave the best view over the pond. The oak tree was the last and highest of the wood. Beyond it there was only an upward-climbing fringe of grass, starred with sanquefoil and wild strawberry, and then the precipice. It was but a miniature precipice that broke to a miniature sea, but it gave an impression of grandeur. Sitting on the bench, with one's head against the oak, one could, if one chose, see nothing but sky and water. There was nothing but sky and water and air. In the noon stillness there was not even a boat on the lake, nor a bird on the wing. The only sounds were those of a hammering far over on the Thorley estate, the humming of an electric car, which at this distance was no more disturbing than the murmur of a bee, and the song of the indigo bunting, fluting now from the treetop. To Rosie it was peace, peace without pleasure, but without pain, as nearly as might be that absorption into nothingness for which she yearned as the Buddhist seeks absorption into God. She rested, not suffering, at least not suffering anything she could feel. She was beyond grief. The only thing she was not beyond was the horror of returning to the interests that had hitherto made up life. As for Claude, she could think of him, when she began doing so, with singular detachment. The whole episode with him might have been ended years before. It was like something which no longer perturbs, though the memory of it is vivid. She could go back and reconstruct the experience from the first. Up to the present she had never found any opportunity of doing that, since each meeting with him was so soul-filling in itself. Now that she had the leisure, she found herself using it as the afternoon wore on. Being on the spot where she had first met him, she could reenact the scene. She knew the very raspberry vine at which she had been at work. She went to it and lifted it up. It was a spiny, red-brown, sprawling thing, just beginning to clothe itself with leaves. It had been breast-high when she had picked the fruit from it, and Claude had stood over there, in that patch of common brakes which then rose above his knees, but was now a bed of delicate, elongated sprays leaning backward with incomparable grace. She found the heart to sing. Her voice, which used to be strong enough, yielding her but the ghost of song, as the notes of an old spinet gave back the ghosts of music long ago dead. O murk, murk is the midnight hour, and loud the tempest's roar. A wayful wanderer seeks thy tower, Lord Gregory, open thy door. She could not remember having so much as hummed this air since the day Claude had interrupted it, but she went on unfalteringly, to the lines at which he had broken in. At least be pity to me shown, if love it may nay be. She didn't falter, even here. She only allowed her voice to trail away in the awed pianissimo into which he had frightened her. She stopped then, and went through the conversation that ensued on that memorable day, and of which the very words were imprinted on her heart. "'Isn't it, Rosie? I'm Claude.' She hadn't smiled on that occasion, 
but she smiled to herself now, a ghost of a smile to match her ghost of a voice, because his tone had been so sweet. She had never heard anything like it before, and since, only in his moments of endearment. But she went home at last. She went home because the May afternoon grew chilly, and in the gathering of shadows beneath the oaks there was something eerie. Expecting a scene or a scolding, she was surprised to find both mother and father calm. They had evidently exchanged views concerning her, deciding that she had better indulge her whims. When she refused to eat, they made little or no protest, and only once during the night did her mother cross the passage to ask fretfully why she didn't go to bed. On the following day there was the same silent acknowledgment of her right to refuse to work, and of her freedom to absent herself. Rosie was quite clear as to what had taken place. Antonio had betrayed the fact of Claude's visit, and her parents had scented a hopeless love affair. Rosie was indifferent. Her love affairs were her own business. She owed neither explanation nor apology to anyone. So long as her parents conceded her liberty to come and go, to nibble rather than to eat, and not to speak when spoken to, she was content. They conceded this all through that week. In her presence they bore themselves with timid constraint, and followed her with stealthy eyes that watched for every shadow that crossed her face. But they let her alone. She was as free as wind all Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. During those days she continued to live in the exultation of the void. There was nothing to fear any more. The worst had happened to her that could happen, and so, in a manner of speaking, she was safe. Never since she had begun to think had she been so free from misgiving and foreboding as to what each new day would bring forth. No day could bring forth anything that could hurt her. By Saturday the nerves of sensation began to show signs of recovering themselves and returning to activity. In thinking of Claude and living through again her meetings with him, there were moments like pangs of longing, of passion, of despair, as the case might be, that went as quickly as they came. But they didn't frighten her. If they were premonitions of a state of anguish, why, there had been so much anguish in her episode with Claude that there couldn't be much more now. If anything, she welcomed it. It would be more as if he was back with her. The void was peaceful. But the void, filled with suffering on his account, would be better still. Anything, anything but to be forced to go back. But on Monday it was the urgency of going back that confronted her. She had come down in the morning to find her breakfast laid in just the way she liked it. Tea, a soft-boiled egg, buttered toast, and as a special temptation to a capricious appetite, a dab of marmalade. She sat down to the table unwillingly, sipping at the tea and nibbling at the toast, but leaving the egg and the marmalade untouched. In her mother's bustling to and fro, she felt the long-delayed protest in the atmosphere. It came while her mother was crossing the room to replace some dishes on the dresser. "'Now, my girl, buck up. Just eat your breakfast and set to work and stop your foolish fancies. If you don't look out, you'll get yourself where I was, and I guess it'll take more than Dr. Hillary to pull you out.' she added as she returned to the kitchen. "'Your father told me to get you busy on the cucumbers. There's a lot to be picked. He's been spanning them and finds them ready.' Rose made use of her privilege of not answering. When she had eaten all she could, 
She took a basket and made her way toward the cucumber house she had not entered since she had left it, with the words, I've quit. It was like going to the scaffold to drag her feet across the yard. It was like mounting it to lift the latch of the paintless door and feel the stifling, pollen-laden air in her face. Nevertheless, habit took her in. Habit sent her eyes searching among the lowest stretches of the vines, where the cool green things were hanging. Habit caused her to stoop and span them with her rough little hand. When her father's thumb and fingers met around them, they were ready to be picked. They were ready when her own came within an inch of doing so. But she raised herself with the rebellious impulse of her whole person before she had picked one. She had picked hundreds in her time, she had picked thousands. She couldn't begin again. With the first one she gathered, the yoke of the past would be around her neck once more. She couldn't bear it. I can't. I can't. With the words on her lips, she slipped out by the door at the far end of the hothouse, and sped towards her refuge on Duck Rock. She had never felt it as so truly a refuge before. Neither had she ever before needed a refuge so acutely. She needed it to-day, because the memory of Claude had at last become a living thing, and every sentient part of her that could be filled with grief was filled with it. Grief had come suddenly. It was creating a new world for her. It was no longer a peaceful void. It was a world of wild passions, wild projects, wild things she would do, wild words she would speak, if ever she had the chance to speak them. She would go in search of him. She would find his father and mother. She would appeal to Thor. She would discover the girl with ten or twelve servants who had come between them. She would implore them all to send him back. She would drag him back. She would hang about his neck till he swore never again to leave her. If he refused, she would kill him. If she couldn't kill him, she would kill herself. Perhaps if she killed herself, she would inflict on him the worst suffering of all. She thought about that. After all, it was the thing most practical. The other impulses were not practical. She knew that, of course. She could humiliate herself to the dust without affecting him. Up to today, she had not wanted him to suffer. But now she did. If she killed herself, he would suffer. However long he lived, or however many servants the woman he married would be able to keep, his life would be poisoned by the memory of what he had done to her. Her imagination revelled in the scenes it was now able to depict. Leaning back with her head resting against the trunk of the old oak, she closed her eyes and viewed the dramatic procession of events that might follow on that morning and haunt Claude Masterman to his grave. She saw herself leaping from the rock. She saw her body washed ashore, her head and hands hanging limp, her long wet hair streaming. She saw her parents mourning, and Thor remorseful, and Claude absolutely stricken. Her efforts rested there. Everything was subordinate to the one great fact that by doing this she could make the sword go through his heart. She went to the edge of the cliff and peered over. Though it was a sheer fifty feet, it didn't seem so very far down. The water was blue and lapping and inviting. It looked as if it would be easy. She returned to her seat. She knew she was only playing. It relieved the tumult within her to pretend that she could do as desperately as she felt. It quieted her. Once she saw that she had it in her power to make Claude unhappy, something in her spirit was appeased. She began the little comedy all over again, from the minute when she started forth from home on the momentous day to fill her pan with raspberries.
she traced her steps down the hill and up through the glades of the bluff, wherever the ripe raspberries were hanging. She came to the minute when her stage directions called for Lord Gregory, and she sang it with the same thin, silvery piping, which was all she could contribute now to the demand of the drama. It was both an annoyance and a surprise to hear a footfall and the swish of robes, and to turn and see Lois Willoughby. Beyond the fact that she couldn't help it, she didn't know why she became at once so taciturn and repellent. "'Oh, she'll come again,' she said in self-excuse, and with vague ideas of atonement, after Lois had gone away. Besides, the things that Lois had said in the way of solicitude, sympathy, and God, made no appeal to her. If she felt regret, it was from obscure motives of compassion, since this woman, too, had missed what was best in love. She would have returned to her dream, had her dream returned to her, but Lois had broken the spell. Rosie could no longer get the ecstasies of reenactment. Reenactment itself became a foolish thing, the husk of what had once been fruit. It was a new phase of loss. Everything went but her misery and her desire to strike at Claude. That, and the sense that whatever she did, and no matter how elusive she made herself, she would have to go back to the old life at last. She struggled against the conviction, but it settled on her like a mist. She played a game with the raspberry vine. She sang Lord Gregory. She peered over the brink of the toy precipice, but she evoked nothing. She stood as close to the edge of the cliff as she dared, whipping and lashing and taunting her imagination by the rashness of the act. Nothing came, but the commonplace suggestion that even if she fell in, the boat which had appeared on the lake, and from which two men were fishing, would rescue her. The worst she would get would be a wetting, and perhaps a cold. She wouldn't drown. Common sense took possession of her. The thing for her to do, it told her cruelly, was to go back and pick the cucumbers. After that there would be some other job. In the market-garden business jobs were endless, especially in spring. She could set about them with a better heart, since, after all that had happened, Archie Masterman couldn't refuse now to renew the lease. He wouldn't have the face to refuse it, so common sense expressed itself, when his son had done her such a wrong. If she had scored no other victory, her suffering would at least have secured that. It was an argument of which she couldn't but feel the weight. There would be three more years of just managing to live, three more years of sowing and planting and watering and watching, at the end of which they would not quite have starved, while Matt would have had a hole in which to hide himself on coming out of jail. Decidedly it was an argument. She had already shown her willingness to sell herself, and this would apparently prove to be her price. Wearily, when noon had passed and afternoon set in, she got herself to her feet. Wearily she began to descend the hill. She would go back again to the cucumbers, she would take up again the burden she had thrown down, she would bring her wild heart into harness and tame it to hopelessness. Common sense could suggest nothing else. She went now by the path, because it was tortuous and less direct than the bee-line over fern. She paused at every excuse, now to watch a robin hopping, now to look at a pink lady's slipper abloom in a bed of streamwort, now for no reason at all. Each step cost her a separate act of renunciation. Each act of renunciation was harder than the other, but successive steps and successive acts brought her down the hill at last. "'I can't, I can't,' 
She dragged herself a few paces farther still. I can't! I can't! She was in sight of the boulevard, where a gang of Finns were working, and beyond which lay the ragged, uncultivated outskirts of her father's land. Up through a tangle of nettles and yarrow, she could see the zigzag path which had been the rainbow bridge of her happiness. She came to a dead stop, the back of her hand pressed against her mouth fearfully. "'If I go up there,' she said to herself, "'I shall never come down again.' She meant that she would never come down again in the same spirit. That spirit would be captured and slain. She herself would be captured and slain. Nothing would live of her but a body to drudge in the hothouse, to earn a few cents a day. Suddenly, without forming a resolution or directing an intention, she turned and sped up the hill. At first she only walked rapidly, but the walk broke into a run, and the run into a swift skimming along through the trees like that of a roused partridge. And yet she didn't know what she was running from. Something within her, a power of guardedness, or that capacity for common sense which had made its last desperate effort to get the upper hand, had broken down. All she could yield to was the terror that paralysed thought. All she could respond to was the force that drew her up the hill with its awful fascination. "'I must do it. I must,' were the words with which she met her own impulse to resist. If her confused thought could have become explanatory, he would have said, "'I must get away from the life I've known, from the care, from the hope, from the love. I must do something that will make Claude suffer.' I must frighten him, I must wound him, I must strike at the girl who has won him away with her ten or twelve servants. And there's no way but this. Even so the way was obscure to her. She was taking it without seeing whither it was to lead. If one impulse warned her to stop, another whipped her onward. I can't stop, I can't stop, she cried out when warning became alarm. For flight gave impetus to itself. It was like release. It was a kind of wild glee. She was as a bird whose wings have been bound and who has worked them free again. There was a frenzy in sheer speed. The path was steep, but she was hardly aware of so much as touching it. Fear behind and anguish within her carried her along. She scarcely knew that she was running breathlessly, that she panted, that once or twice she stumbled and fell. Something was beckoning to her from the great, safe, empty void, something that was nothing, unless it was peace and sleep, something that had its abode in the free spaces of the wind and the blue caverns of the sky and the kindly lapping water, something infinite and eternal and restful, in whose embrace she was due. At the edge of the wood she had a last terrifying moment. The raspberry vine was there, and the great oak with the seat around it, and the carpet of sink-foil and swild strawberry— she gave them a quick, frightened look, like an appeal to impede her. If she was to stop, she must stop now. But I can't stop, she seemed to fling to them over her shoulder, as she kept on to where, beyond the highest tip of Greenswood, the blue level of the lake appeared. The boat with the two fishermen was nearer the shore than when she had observed it last. They'll save me, oh, they'll save me, she had time to whisper to herself, at the supreme moment when she left everything behind. There followed a space which in Rose's consciousness was long. She felt that she was leaping, flying out into the welcoming void, and that the promise of rest and peace had not deceived her. But it was in the shock of falling that sanity returned, 
and all that the tense little creature had been, and tried to be, and couldn't be, and longed to be, and feared to be, and failed to be, broke into a cry, at which the fishermen dropped their rods. End of chapter 25